0: All right, good morning. good morning. Welcome to everybody here at our main campus. Welcome to you guys that are joining us online. So if you have your Bible, I want you to jump right in. We're going to be in Revelations today. Again, the ending of our letters, Revelations 3, 14 through 22. But I want to set it up a little bit with we're coming to the end of the letters, right? So... He wrote letters to seven churches, and, and again, it's a part of the season of re- reading Revelations or a part of you know, uh, the book where it's like, here's what's here and now, right? So I'm going to write to you, physical churches that are here and now, here are some messages to you, right? And in those messages, he's asking them to prepare in a couple different ways, right? So in that, he's asking them to see the things that they're doing, Right? see the things that they're doing wrong, or to see where they need to be different and they need to make changes, right? That's the churches, right? He writes the letters to them as a warning that, you know, if you don't change, this is what's going to happen. And if you do change, these are the things that are going to happen. But either way, there's a response, right? And the thing that's the hardest about reading Revelation or the thing that I think is difficult for each one of us when we're reading this is, is, so what should my response be? Because I've heard different things from different people as we go through this, like, wow, like you come and I sit in there and I walk away and I'm not really sure, am I saved, am I not saved, am I in the right place, am I not in the right place, am I doing enough or I'm not doing enough or what does that really look like? And the point of it all is is that, first of all, it's not bad, you know, part of the reason that he wrote the letters is to say, you know what, it's better that you figure it out now or better that you ask the questions now or better that you process these things now Before it gets too late and the other part of it is is that inside of writing these letters He's asking each one of us to have some sort of response Right, like that's the biggest thing the letters were to get a response from the churches But the hardest thing when we as American Christians read this We read it in a way that makes it hard to understand because we understand the lamb of God like you like that picture all right, you like the picture and he's sitting with the lamb or he's carrying it around on his back and kids are sitting on his lap, right? But what about the Lion of Judah? You know what I mean? Like people don't like to discuss the Lion of Judah and the, what the Lion of Judah actually looks like, the other side of grace and judgment, right, the things that go together that too many times in the American church we want grace and mercy because you feel better when you walk away, Right? Like, you could say, man, I feel like I suck, but a good thing he ended it up with, like, oh, but there's grace and mercy, and you're good, you know, and you can walk out of here kind of salving over a wound or a problem that you don't do anything about, right? That happens in the American church, right? We we bring something up, and people are like, oh, terrible, but then we end it with, but God loves you, right? Which isn't all wrong, but that love sometimes applied in the wrong way is just a band-aid or a salve over a wound that he's saying, I want to rip it off. And I want to open it up and I want to deal with it because if you don't deal with it, there's mighty problems for a wound that doesn't get fixed. There are mighty problems with these things. And that's the Lion of Judah piece. And so in the letters, I feel like he does a pretty good job of like introducing this idea that too many times we don't talk about that there's this Lion of Judah. Because in these letters, it's all like what's here and now. And what's going on right now and you were seeing both sides of it like I know your deeds and they're good and I love you but I also know your deeds and they're not so good and you need to do something about it like you're seeing both sides of it but do you realize what you're getting ready to see is Jesus riding in on a white horse with blood on his robe with a sword in his hand that's what's coming Right? Like that's, that, this next part of Revelations that we're going to be talking about is the seals get opened up and judgment happens. And a lot of the character of God that you're going to see that's never talked about is brought to to fruition, right? Like it's brought to a place where people are going to see it and you're going to see it for what it really is. And you're going to understand that you can't ignore, because a lot of times we want to ignore what happened inside of the Uh, Old Testament where we see some of those things come out like God dealing with his people and we're like Well, but that was the Old Testament. God doesn't really deal with his people that way Right, but here's the deal This part of revelation that we're getting ready to study shows that there is a side of God that is judgment And I know you don't want to hear that but there is a side of God that is judgment And there is a side of God that is merciful, but you can't separate them. You can't have a God of all judgment, and you can't have a God of all mercy, that mercy and judgment go together, and you need to figure out where you land inside of all of that and what we need to be able to do. So I wanted to get us a picture in our eyes, because I think the message that I'm going to talk about today may, may be one of the hardest messages for the American church ever, right? Like I think the church in Laodicea and what they're dealing with is the hardest thing for the American church to be able to deal with and be able to understand. So I want to set it up in a way that helps you understand the character of God and how he deals with people who choose to live in mediocrity, chooses to deal with people who live somewhere in the middle and think that they're okay, right? Like I want you to see this character of God because when we get to the church of Macedonia, and he's essentially saying, you know, better be hot or better be cold because if you're in the middle, like this is what he's saying, if you're in the middle, if you are lukewarm, this isn't like, oh, I hope you warm up. This is, I'm spitting you out of your mouth, my mouth, which means people who are lukewarm, I'll just give you a little, you know, pre into what we're going to be talking about, like a little vision of what we're talking about. If you are lukewarm, it's not that you're going to experience a different place in heaven you're going to experience eternity in hell. You don't get a different place in heaven for just, you don't get to be the door sweeper just because you didn't do anything. That's not the way it works, right? Those things, and this is a common thing in American Christianity is, is that I want to give my life because this is what we do way too many times. We're going to see this here in a little bit. We want to say with our mouth that Jesus Christ is our Lord. So when somebody gets in a church service and they're like, everybody that wants to give their hand, life to Jesus Christ, raise your hand. Okay, in the back and over there and over there and you and there. And, and then all of a sudden, close your eyes and bow your head and say this prayer. And this is the prayer you need to say. You're a sinner and you need to give your life to Christ. You need to profess that Jesus Christ is Lord and Savior. And you know, put your hand up. And then, you walk, and then after you put your hand up, you're like, I'm good. I professed with my mouth that Jesus Christ is Lord but with my life, I live as if he is not my Lord. And you think because the church has told you way too many times, you're okay. You're okay. You'll just be the door sweeper, door greeter. You'll, you don't mind because you just want to get through and get in, and I don't really care. I said the thing. That you're going to see. These aren't my words. That is a complete fallacy. It's a fallacy. Anybody that told you that that's the way that it works, it doesn't. And again, don't just take my word for it. You're going to see it in how he deals with the church in Lacedonia that this is a real thing. Like this is a real problem, right, where people are deceived. Because here's what you're going to see. You know, you know who are the hardest people to reach? Because they're not people who are cold who don't know Christ. A lot of people think, oh, they're so hard to reach because they don't really care. You know who the hardest people to reach are the deceived, The hardest group of people inside of American Christianity and in in the American culture that we're in today are the people that be like, well, I believe that there is a God and I believe that Jesus Christ died on the cross, but you can't reach them, right? You know why? Because they think they're fine. And this, and again, these aren't my words. Many people will be deceived. Many people, we're going to see this here in a little bit, are going to say, well, I said, Lord, Lord. And he's going to say, I know, but I didn't know you. But I did. And I said, I know, I didn't know you. Many, not a few, many. And they fall into this category in the church of Lacedonia because somehow they were deceived into thinking that being in the middle and being mediocre and just trying to get by, sweeping the floors or do whatever, just trying to make it in was enough. Right? And they've missed the whole message of what being a follower of Jesus Christ really is. So here's what I'm going to ask you to do. And I know a lot of people, when you start off a message, they're like, Ugh, I think this one's going to suck. Like, I don't really want to hear it. I want to tune out. Like, I don't want to feel any worse than I already feel. Here's what I'm telling you. Listen to me. You need to hear this today. Right? You need to open yourself up to what Scripture has to say and what Scripture wants to do inside of you because I'm convinced of this, because I've told people this, like people who will walk, be like, you know what, I come, and I've been listening to these messages, and I don't know, am I saved, or am I not saved, do I really have fruit, do I not really have fruit, I'm like, I don't know, ask, if Jesus Christ, if you really want to know, do you think Jesus is up there like, I'm going to make him squirm, <laughs> do you think that's what he's doing, do you think he's up there saying, I'm not going to really tell him, I'm going to just let him keep him in the dark, if you want to know that you're saved or not saved, you want to know you're in the right place or not in the right place ask but you know why you don't want to ask because you don't want to hear because once you know where you truly are it calls for a response i don't know if you're prepared for the response true but do you really want to know it from your kids do you really know when, do you really want to know what they're where they're really at You know, because we just live sometimes, like, you know how sometimes it's just easier to live inside of the lie and convince ourselves it's true? Anybody, right? Like, we just want to convince ourselves we're okay. We just want to convince our kids that that our kids are okay. We just want to convince ourselves that our spouse is okay. Maybe that's the worst thing that you could ever do. Maybe the worst thing that you could ever do is help them buy into the same lie because you don't want to face the truth. That you and or the people that you love are lukewarm and the response of a lukewarm person is they will spend eternity away from God in a place that's real called hell. And that inside of this, I'm hoping that this is what we'll see. Better to reveal it, better to talk about it, better to understand where you're really at. Because in that, at least you can do a proper response instead of being deceived. In the deception, there's never a response needed. Right inside of the deception, you don't have to do anything about it. But whether you're hot or cold, it it requires a response inside of that. So that's what we're going to get to. But I want to read to you Isaiah. This is Isaiah five one through six, and this is going to be something you can go back to and read. It'll be up on the screen. But I wanted you to see how does God deal with the nation of Israel? Okay, because it shows somewhat of the character of God, and it shows somewhat of how we do things. Right. So this is going to be. If you do want to go there, it's going to be Isaiah five. 1 through 6. So think about this. Here's one thing that we know about the nation of Israel. They had really good moments and really bad moments. Like, think about this. They were in Egypt, in exile, being essentially slaves. God hears their cries, and he goes, and he sends Moses, and they're, they're freed, right? So they get out, you know, and they're on their exodus, going away from Pharaoh. Pharaoh decides to change his mind, right? Pharaoh changes his mind, and Pharaoh's got him trapped, and there's the Red Sea, them, and Pharaoh, who's going to kill all of them, right? What does God do? He parts the Red Sea, right? Parts the Red Sea. They walk through on dry ground. They get to the other side. They look back. The Egyptians are coming walking through on dry ground. The water comes in and kills the whole enemy, who could ever walk away from a God who parts the Red Sea? Think about this. Who walks away from a God that does those amazing things? The nation of Israel. Pretty soon, they're worshiping a stupid golden calf. They just saw God part the Red Sea, and then they turn around, and then they worship something else, right? And so, God, because of the way that they operate or because of the things that they do, at times deals with them in in certain ways, and I want us to see that in Isaiah, but here's the other thing I want you to see, because this is easy, I think, for us, I hope. If you saw God part the Red Sea, you're going to be like, there's no way I'd ever walk away from God. God right? I mean, let's be honest. Like if you were standing there and God parted the Red Sea and you ran through and then your enemy, you know, the person you hate, like he just swallowed them up. You're going to be like, that's the God that I'm serving. But you know what? He's parting the Red Sea for you every day and you're still walking away from him. You know what I mean? Like he he is, and you're going to see this in this scripture verse, he is doing things for you every single day, delivering you every single day putting a fence around you every single day, and we still walk away from him on a consistent basis, just like the nation of Israel. So listen to what it says. So this is somewhat like a parable that it writes in Isaiah, but here's what he says. Uh, And again, for everybody that did go to their Bible, this is the message translation. So it says the same thing, but might be worded in a different way. I sing a ballad to the one I love, a love ballad about his vineyard. The one I love had a vineyard, a fine well-placed vineyard. He hoed the soil and pulled the weeds and planted the very best vines. He built a lookout, built a wine press, a vineyard to be proud of. He looked for vintage yield of grapes, but all of his pains, he got garbage grapes. So here's the picture that he's trying to paint. God provided the vineyard, right? Hoed the ground, put up the fence, you know, wine press, like put it all together for the success of The grapes, right? The success of his people. That's what he's trying to get you to see. Set all of these things up for the success of his people. And then he's assuming a response. If he gets it all prepared, what does he expect? Good grapes. What does he get? Garbage. Garbage. He prepared everything. And this is why I want you to see this. When he prepares, there's an expectation of a return. Right? And that's the thing we miss sometimes in Christianity. There is an expectation of a return. God's preparing things in your life, and when he prepares these things in your life, there's an expectation that there is a return on his investment, for lack of a better term. Right, A return on his investment for what he has put out there. And if we don't, right, this is what I want you to see because this is so important because we sit here and look like, well, if we don't, then we're just not gonna be as good as somebody else. Like God's just gonna look at us and be like, oh, you know, I'm just not doing as much as somebody else and he's not gonna really care. Like somebody else's grapes are really good and my grapes suck, but at least I have grapes, right? At least there's grapes out there. Like why wouldn't God be happy as long as there's grapes? Listen to what he says. He says, now listen to what I'm telling you. You live in Jerusalem and Judah. What do you think is going on between me and my vineyard? Can you think of anything I could have done to my vineyard that I did not do? So he's saying, like, I've done everything. And when I expected good grapes, why did I get bitter grapes? Right? So he's saying that. Like, I prepared everything. I should get good grapes. There's no reason that I should get bitter grapes. So because he did, this is what he says. Well, now let me tell you what I will do to my vineyard. I'll tear down its fence, let it go to ruin. I'll knock down the gate and let it be trampled. I'll turn it into a patch of weeds, unattended, uncared for. Thistles and thorns will take over. I'll give orders to the clouds, don't rain on that vineyard, ever. So anybody that thinks you can live in the mediocre and God doesn't care? Does God care? Because here's the one thing you haven't seen that you're going to see. Satan has not been unleashed on this earth yet. He's always on a chain, and he's always on the outside of a fence, only to be allowed what God allows him to do. But you know what you're going to see in Revelation? An unleashing of Satan without God. You're going to see it. The picture that he was getting here is, is, you know what? Right now, today, you might not know this, but I have a fence around you. You might not know this, but I'm working on your behalf. You might not know this, but I'm preparing the soil. You might not know this, but I'm here. My expectation, because of what I've done for you, is good fruit. that if you choose to live in the mediocre Oh, I'm producing grapes, who really cares? I'm doing the, I'm doing the best I can, right? The character that we see in Isaiah through God is this: If that's the way you want to picture it, it's dangerous. It is dangerous in two ways. One. Because if that vineyard doesn't get torn down, you'll be deceived for the rest of your life that bitter grapes are okay. If I don't tear down this vineyard in front of you, you're going to live for the rest of your life deceived. If I don't interact in a way that says, I'm going to respond to something that I don't accept, you're going to think that it's acceptable. You know what else is dangerous about that? And so will the people around you. So I'm going to make sure that everybody understands that bitter grapes crappy grapes are not acceptable, and you might not like this, but I'm tearing it down. You might not like this, but you might have to get to your knees. You might not like this, but I'm going to bring a realization to you that this is not acceptable, and that you need to have a response. And too many times, our response is, God tore my fence down, and now I got weeds, and I don't know what to do. You know what your response should be? Thank goodness he finally tore my fence down, so I need to know that I need him. Because inside of the fence, producing bad grapes forever, I was just like, I'm good. Good thing I'm not deceived. Thank the Lord for the trials that came in my life. Thank you, Lord, for the weeds that showed up. Thank the Lord for these things, because inside of this fence and in this wine press, I thought it was just okay, right? Better that we understand truth before it's too late, and that's what he's trying to do, and I want everybody around you to understand this is what's true, right? That I'm not going to accept mediocre things, right? what I want from you is good grapes. I've given you the ability to produce good grapes, so the question is whether or not which side of the fence that you find yourself on. Okay, so does that help us get a picture of what God and how he's working? So when we go into Revelation, so now let's go back to Revelation 3. So in the church of Laodicea, now we're going to look at, now that we understand that this just isn't a one-off thing where he's saying it to the church in Laodicea. This is a character thing that he's been dealing with throughout all of the time of the Old Testament, dealing with it through the New Testament, and now dealing with us in the same place, okay? So we get that on how he does, does that. So let's read all the way through it. The church of Laodicea, starting in uh, Revelation 3, starting in verse 14. To the angel of the church in Laodicea write, these are the words of the amen, the faithful and true witness, the ruler of God's creation. I know your deeds, that you are neither cold nor hot. I wish you were either one one or the other. So because you are lukewarm, neither hot nor cold, I'm about to spit you out of my mouth. You say that I am rich and I have acquired wealth and do not need a thing. But you do not realize that you are wretched, pitiful, poor, blind, and naked. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined in the fire so that you become rich and white clothes to wear. So you can cover your eyes, so you can cover your shameful nakedness, and salve to put your, on your eyes, so that you can see. Those whom I love, I rebuke and discipline. So be earnest and repent. Here I am; I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door. I will come in and eat with that person and they with me. To the one who is victorious, I will give the right to sit with me on my throne, just as I was victorious and sat down with my father on his throne. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. So again, Church of Laodicea, one thing to point out before we go into studying it, most of the other churches had a remnant of good things going on. The Church of Laodicea, nothing was referred to them as good. Not even a remnant to say there's a little bit of an ember, there's a little bit of a fire, we need to fan the flame. There's a few of you that are doing good things, but the majority of the church is doing bad things, you know what I mean? He's saying, this is the picture of Laodicea. Everybody inside of the church is deceived, right? Everything that's going on is a deception, and there's a reason that this deception's happened, right? There's a reason that all of the people inside of it were deceived. And here's what he says, so let's break it down. To the angel of the church in Laodicea, so back to the beginning, understand why what was happening in culture, because this is important in our own Christian faith, culture sometimes dictates how the church operates, right? So the culture in which the church lives in, because so much of culture tends to make its way inside of the church, what's happening in culture tends to be a part of what's happening inside of the church, good or bad, right? So in the church of Laodicea, here's the one thing that you need to see. The church of Laodicea was rich for this reason. So, inside of that, you know, inside of their city, they were the the premier banking community. So one of the ways that they made money was through banking, just like what we see banking today, in exchanging money and lending money. The other way that they made money is through clothing. So they had this thing called black wool, and the black wool that they made was was, uh, desired by lots of different people, and so they were in the clothing industry, and they were also in the medical industry. So in the medical industry, they created or made a salve that you put on the eyes of people that would help them see again. Right so the medical field was if you were blind or had an eye injury you got salve from the city of Laodicea and it was shipped out everywhere so that people could then see. So what that did is it created a city that had tons of wealth and then a church that also had the same thing. Right? The culture of the city was we're doing pretty good, and the culture of the church was, we're doing pretty good because money was not an issue, right? And we're going to see that that leads to part of their problems, right? Part of their problem was life was going so good, right? Part of their problem was is that things were going in the right direction and they didn't have any trouble. But here's what he goes on and says to them in the rest of uh, verse 14. says, these are the words of the amen, the faithful and true witness, and the ruler of God's creation. So he starts off with, you remember in the beginning of every one of the letters, how he defines himself, right? So he defines himself with a certain character trait so that when you get ready to read, it usually matches the character trait. So this character trait that he says, he says, I am the amen and the faithful and true witness, right? And here's why. When you get, when you're getting ready to read what he does with lukewarm people, you're going to try to justify why it's okay to be lukewarm. That's what you're gonna do. Because that's naturally what we do. Because I'm just telling you, if you read this for what it is, you're gonna struggle. And you know why you're gonna struggle? Because lots of people fall in this category. And so what happens, this is what we naturally do with truth truth that we don't agree with, we justify for why we don't follow it. Right? This is the reason it can't be true. Right? The reason it can't be true is because somebody else said it. So he establishes right from the beginning everybody's gonna have a problem with this you know, that truth, and this is what Mike said, or this is what another preacher said about it, and he just wants you to be re- let you to understand this right from the beginning. I'm not saying it, he's saying it. Yes, sir. The one that is the one who makes the difference for eternity is the one saying it. This isn't my interpretation, right? This isn't somebody else deciding something. He's saying, when you struggle with this, and you wanna to try to justify a way around why you're lukewarm, he's just flat out telling you, well, here's the deal. I am the faithful witness, and what I say is true. And so I don't know how you work around this, but lukewarm people are going to be spit out, and they are going to spend eternity in hell. Try to justify it. Try to talk about it. Try to excuse it away of why you are lukewarm. But he just flat out says, if you are, this is what's going to happen to you. Okay? So then he goes on, and he helps us understand what he's talking about, you know, inside of this that's so important to us. So verse 15 says, I know your deeds, that you are neither cold nor hot. I wish you were either one or the other. So because you are lukewarm, neither hot nor cold, I am about to spit you out of my mouth. So let's start with this. Here's the one thing that we understand that he said in every one of the letters. Your deeds will represent or solidify where you stand inside of your heart, right? Deeds solidify where you are, right? Or solidify your spiritual state. Okay, that's what deeds do. So we do understand this. You're spiritual to, to be saved by Jesus Christ. Here's what we know. It's through the blood of Jesus Christ, right? But if you give your life to Jesus Christ and the blood truly coven you and you are a follower, your deeds will reveal your spiritual state, right? Is this making sense? Because it'll also reveal the spiritual state on the other side, that you are deceived, but your deeds are going to be the thing that you should, like if you have this question, like I'm not really sure where I'm at and I don't really know and again here's something that you should get and I want to make sure that we get this. I should be able to if I'm in relationship with somebody okay, and I'm spending time with them, I should know over a period of time if the deeds of their life show that they are saved or not. You know what the pro- so here's part of the problem is, is that This whole idea of deeds is a deeds of a journey and not deeds of a moment because we've all had deeds where we suck and we've all had seasons of our life where we're not good. Anybody? We just do. I mean, you have seasons of your life where you suck. Like, it's not good. I've had seasons of my life where I am not where I need to be, right? This is seasonal. But if I'm in relationship with you, over the course of the period of your life, I should be able to say, I know that your deeds and I know that you love the Lord. Because the deeds of your life, not the deeds of your moment in time, are what prove your salvation, right? It's what shows that you are truly saved. And that's why we, first of all, have to be careful when we look at somebody's life and we're like, Well, look at that person, they got to be going to hell. Why do you think they're going to hell? Well, I saw them do, or I saw them act, and I'm like, somebody ought to slap you. You don't even know them. You don't have a right to do that. You don't have a right to stand from a distance and say, well, that person can't be saved because they did a certain action, right? Unless you want to hold yourself to the same standard, and that'd really suck for you, Right? I mean, those things wouldn't be good if you're going to hold yourself to the same standard. Because I don't know one person on fire for Jesus Christ that hasn't had a season of like, ugh. Right? That we haven't had those seasons where we go through those types of things. So he says, understand this. When we're talking about deeds, it's through being in relationship with somebody. That's why I'm saying, parents, it shouldn't be that hard to know whether or not your kids are saved. You know them, right? (laughs) You spend time with them, right? Right? the deeds of their life don't, and again, parents hear me say this don't justify their lack of deeds because you're afraid where they're going to go you know what I mean? Like, don't be like, oh in my mind I just want to justify away why they aren't following Jesus right now or why their deeds don't reflect what they say you are doing them a disservice, you are just allowing them to be a part of the deception you know them their deeds of their life. Now, again, as kids, we all have seasons of not being where we need to be, right? But if you look at it from a whole, parents, we should be able to say to our kids flat out, I'm not judging you. I'm just telling you the truth. The deeds of your life do not represent that you love Jesus. I still love you. He still loves you. That's the thing we're going to see. But right now, I just want to be honest with you. People who are in relationship, husbands and wives, people who are in deep relationship with other people, don't be afraid to say, listen, hey, the deeds of your life are not a representation of a person who follows Jesus Christ. And I haven't just seen it for a moment. I've seen it through the years of your life. So let's talk about it. Let's try to figure it out. Let's not try to, what we do all the time, which is to take wounds and cover them up because it's better to cover the wound than it is to deal with the wound, right? Because dealing with the wound hurts, right? Dealing with the wound is even admitting you have a wound to begin with, right? And that was the whole thing is, is, you know why it's so hard to reach the church in Laodicea, and you know why it's so hard to reach the church inside of America? Because they don't think they need anything. They won't admit where they truly are. Right? They won't be okay just admitting the deeds of my life right now. And I, I, what's revealed to me is I thought I was a believer because I went to a youth camp and I said it one time, I thought I was that, but you know what? I'm really not. I'm not. Or one time in church, they told me to do it and I'm really not. I'm just not. Or even, you know what? I said it and in the moment I came up and got baptized and I'm not. Like, this is a real thing. Like This really happens with people. Amen. Right? Like, this is a real-life journey with people, right? And it's not, again, not a condemnation, just a reality for all of us, right? Something we should think about. Because then he does go on and identifies cold, right? So I wish you were one or the other. Not too hard to identify what cold is, right? So he'd say cold people are people who reject Jesus, right? People who don't go to church, people who have heard all the rhetoric, and they just flat-out said, you know what? You are counting on your eternity or your life in God. I'm counting on myself. But you know why he says it's better for them to be cold? Because at least they admit it. Other people are coming and just won't admit it, but that's what you're really doing. You are just like a non-believer, right? Like you don't outwardly reject Jesus, but you live as if you don't need him right like you're doing no different than what at least the unbelievers like yep don't believe your word you know like they're like your word I would never believe your word we say we believe our word but we don't ever do it so do you really believe it you see where the deception comes in like at least it's like no I don't believe the word I don't believe any of it I'm not going to follow it I'm going to follow myself I'm going to do right and then it's pretty easy to see somebody who's hot right Somebody who's hot who has a trans who who is said that they profess Jesus with their mouth, but they also have a transformed life. Like just look at them, right? Back to, if you're spending time with your kids, you would know that they were saved. Why? Because you see the transformation of their life. If there is no transformation, because just hear me out, I know you want to excuse this away. Little, big, mighty, whatever, right? I don't know. But to say, well, my, life, my kid gave their life to Jesus Christ but they always grew up in a church so there really isn't any transformation is a complete lie. I don't care if they grew up in a church. That one too harsh? You hear what I'm saying, right? Because this happens all the time. We excuse away no transformation in the life of kids that grew up inside of the church and I'm like, dude, Jesus is living in them. They didn't have Jesus before. I don't care if they grew up in the church or not. They were just morally good. Now they're transformed. There is something different. Don't explain away their lack of transformation and deceive them. Don't do it. That's not the way it works. I don't care their age. Again, there is transformation in the life of somebody who takes Jesus Christ and lives inside of them, right? Back to what we said in the beginning, listen to me. You know, back in the, the Old Testament, we're like, who in the world sees the Red Sea part and then go, walks away? You know what I think they're seeing in heaven? Who gets Jesus Christ to live inside of them and then walks away? Who gets Jesus Christ, and you know what he says? He says this, when the power of Jesus Christ lives inside of you, you will do more than what Jesus did on this earth. And they're up there saying, and you guys are talking about, well, I don't know, a little transformation, little, uh, no transformation, and it's okay. They're like, Jesus is living in you how is there no transformation? And we just excuse it away. Well, it's just they're young and they're this and they're that. And I'm like, it's crap. It's crap. It's crap. Transformation will happen. It's just the way to, don't, don't explain it away. Don't go down those roads. In this hot, you should know because you should see it. And sometimes it's going to be small and sometimes it's going to be little steps, right? Like little steps and little things. And sometimes you go back and then you go forward, amen to anybody, right? We're going forward and we go back, but we keep, we keep doing this, right? We just have these, we go back and we go forward. But at the end of the day, we're moving, we're doing, there is transformation, you are working on it, you are identifying, this is what, this is what hot people do, people who are on fire for Jesus, that's when he said, I love that you're hot. They don't have any problem identifying when they're in a season of their life where they shouldn't be and I need to do something about it. Because you know how I talked about we all go through seasons, even people who are hot for Jesus. But you know what's so great about that season? At least you know you're not where you're supposed to be. That proves that you're hot. Not that the season doesn't prove anything. The, re- the recognition of I'm not where I need to be proves and asks for a response and your response will confirm, you know what, I'm saved. doesn't mean I won't go back to a crappy season in my life, but it just it's a reminder that he cares for me and he's still working with me, right? And that he's revealing what I need to do different. And so I'm going to keep working on it to move forward. The greatest deception is here in the middle. This is the problem. Lukewarm people, and here's what I want you to hear, okay? so This might be hard. So if you are all checked out, come back for just a second because I want you to hear this. When he's talking to the church in Laodicea, see sometimes we do this and I think we're talking about people outside of the church, like somebody who came to church for a while and then they just stopped going to church and that might be the person he's talking about because they're lukewarm. Listen to me, these were people in the church attending church every single Sunday. These were people inside of the church that were professing with their mouth that Jesus Christ was Lord. These were people that were doing religious activity. Giving, serving, showing up to church, reading their Bibles, they were doing all of those things, right? So I don't want you to have this misconception that just because you attend church and just because you read your Bible and just because you do those types of things or even confess with your mouth that you are saved, that you are saved because these people Lukewarm, they confessed, they acted, they played the part, they did the thing. And he says, these people, I'm spitting you out of my mouth. That's tough, isn't it? I mean, these aren't people that aren't going to church. I think that's always the misconception. We're like, well, the lukewarm are the people that just kind of come to church, don't go to church. No, these were people going to church these were people in the church. In fact, we know that this is how he deals with it because when you, look at Lot, when you look at Matthew 7, so this is something you could go back to. We'll have it up on the screen. But we know that on the last day, listen to me, we know on the last day of judgment, we know that when people stand in front of Jesus Christ, they will and there will be people that will say this, Matthew 7, 23, many will say to me on that day. How many? Many. Many. Many will people say to them today, Lord, Lord, profession of their mouth. Was that not a profession of their mouth? They raised their hand sometime, you know what I did? They did the deal. They said, Yep. They asked me to say he's my Lord. Yep, he's my Lord. I did it. Right? They profess with their mouth. Because again, remember, the deception that anybody told you that, oh yeah, as long as you just say it with your mouth, you're good doesn't understand the whole of scripture and what salvation looks like. That's not the whole. That's not the way it works, right? Because there are going to be people that would say, Lord, Lord, did we not, this is the works, and this is actually pretty amazing. Like, I don't even know how many of us are doing this. Didn't we prophesy in your name, and in your name drive out demons, and in your name perform many miracles? That's pretty good, (laughs) right? Like, when you look at what they were doing from religious work standpoint, we're like, I'd like to be that good, I wish I could do some of those things, but what's the response that Jesus gives them? They can say, I said, Lord, I'm doing all these things, and we even did it in your name. The response that Jesus gives them is then I will tell you plainly, I never knew you. I never knew you. I don't want to make this too hard, so I want to try to make this easy for you, because I think people struggle with this, like, Wow, I mean, how could that be? How could it be that somebody was gonna stand up there and they professed with their mouth that Lord, Lord, you're my savior and they went through the motions and did all those things and he's gonna say, away from me, evildoer. How does that happen? Here's how it happens. Did you notice at the end of it, he says, it's because I don't know you. You see, here's what I want you to understand. Don't make this difficult. If you've ever experienced love or loved, right? You know whether or not you're loving Jesus, period. Period. And you know whether or not somebody that's around you is loving Jesus. And we all know that loving people isn't always through just doing things, right? That's not how we love well, right? Love is done through relationships, right? We know this. Like, love is done through relationships. I've always said, like, husbands and wives, like, people that, you know, or girlfriend or boyfriend, like, when you're in these, it's not hard right, when you're you're thinking through these things, it's not hard to define, like, am I loving them well or not? Right? I mean, this shouldn't be difficult. Like, I either am loving you well or not loving you well. And we all know when we're not loving each other well. So why is it so difficult to think through this idea? If you love somebody, listen to me, if you love somebody, your children, your husband, your wife, whatever those things are, the deeds of your life will show that you love them. Why is that so hard? Why do we make this like, well, I don't know, am I doing enough, not doing enough? Judas, priest, listen to me. If you love him, you will love him. The deeds of your life will show that you love him. It shouldn't be that hard and you shouldn't excuse away this whole idea well yeah I say that I love him but the deeds of my life don't does that go over in a marriage only for a while (laughs) they don't last long right it does not last long right exactly they get spit out one of the two you spit each other out whatever that looks like but that's the point it's not that hard to define if you're not loving each other well, it does not make any sense, right? So why do we make this so difficult when all he says is, here's the expectation, love me. Because if you're in relationship with me, you will love me, right? And you will show that you love me through the deeds of your life, right? You know problem the problem with the church in Laodicea? They just did it because it was the thing to do to make them feel better. It was self-righteousness, right? They did it in a way to say, oh, yeah, well, I'll go to church because everybody goes to church, and I'll check it off in the boxes because I just want to be good. Can I tell you this? I don't care how long you go to church or how mature you are or how many times you read the Bible or how many verses you can study, you're not good. Right? You're just not good. And when somebody asks you why you should spend eternity in heaven, you shouldn't. You shouldn't. I don't care how good you are, how many messages you preach, how many Bible stories you read, or what you've ever done. You you don't deserve it. You never deserved it. Self-righteous people say, you know why I should go to heaven? Because I prophesied in your name, and I cast out demons in your name, and I did this in your name, and I came to church in your name, and I read the Bible in your name, and self-righteously. I've said this from the beginning. I have no idea why you would ever save me. Like I have no idea. Like, why would somebody that I walked away from for 20 years of my life, why would I deserve it? 20 years of my life, I could have cared less about him. Wouldn't have made me a crap's bit of difference what Jesus was doing. And I went to church. Well, I didn't really give a crap. Like, I wasn't doing it for any reason other than other reasons, right? Like, I was doing it for other reasons to do it. Self-righteousness go in that. So the point just is this. He's trying to say, true love is done through relationship. We do these things. You know why you came to church today or why you should come to church today? Because you love him. You know why you should worship with all of your heart? Because you love him. You know why you should do these things? Not because anybody told you to do them. It's because you love him. True love responds to that person in ways because they love him without anything in return. I love you. That's why I'm here today. Right? Like, that's why he's doing it. And that's what he's trying to say inside of this. So don't get caught up in, like, trying to figure out this should be an easy solution for you. And you should be easily be able to understand this. Whether you are or are not in the place that you need to be, are you loving him or you're not? Right? That shouldn't be hard for us to understand. So then he goes on and says this, this is their problem. How did you get to the place where you were lukewarm? You say that I am rich and have acquired wealth and do not need a thing, but you do not realize that you are wretched, pitiful, poor, blind, and naked. You know what the problem was? You know what the problem in the church in America is today? Two things. Money and wealth have deceived so many people Because at the end of the day, when you are wealthy and you have enough, you don't really need God. That's what's happening in the church of Laodicea. What did they need him for? Good money, good jobs, things are going well. What do you really need God for? Just keep going through the religious activity. We'll just keep doing this. God must love us because we're blessed. Isn't that funny how sometimes people always bring blessing with the financial aspect of it all? And I'm like, sometimes the most blessed people are the ones that have to endure trials. You know why? Because they come out with the most important thing, which isn't money, but it's faith. Right? I think some of the most blessed people in life are the people that have experienced things that nobody wants to experience on this earth. Because on the other side of that, we see what God really wants. And we just, too many times, be like, God must be so good. We got money and prosperity, and we don't need, and everything's going together, and he's like, that's how you got deceived to begin with, is a need you don't think you need, and you know how else you got deceived? You thought you were good, but you're pitiful, poor, blind, and naked. And the only way you get made right is through a relationship with Jesus Christ, so that deception you never realized. I don't, and again, this is what I was trying to say. I don't care if you grew up a church or came from a cocaine-addicted background, you are still poor, blind, pitiful and naked. Period. You're both the same. No one has this like spectacular story. We all have a spectacular story. We all came from the depths of sin and were delivered by the savior Jesus. So anybody's like, well, "I don't really have a story cuz I didn't really get up." And then you don't know how bad you are. If you want me to remind you, I can help you with your story. Right? just because you grew up in a church, just because your religion was around you, don't think that you're not at the same level as somebody that went off the deep end on some other things. We're still the same thing. A recognition of who you are will allow you to be in a relationship with Jesus Christ. If you never recognize that, do you really need him anyway? If you're not wretched, poor, blind, pitiful, and naked, what do you need? You sure don't need a savior. But man, when you are poor, blind, wretched, pitiful, and naked, I need something. And Jesus is that something, right? So then he goes on and he talks about this. He says, verse 18, I counsel you to buy from me gold refined in the fire so you can become rich, and white clothes to wear so that you can cover your shameful nakedness, and salve to put on your eyes so that you can see. Isn't it amazing? You might not think this is amazing. I think it's cool how he deals with all the things that they put their certainty in and said, you need to flip it. Not banking, but gold refined by fire, right? Not black wool, but white clothes. Eye salve that helps people physically see. What you really need is the eye salve that helps you spiritually see. Isn't that cool? Like flips everything that they put their hope in and says like this is what you should really be putting your hope in. And then he talks about this. Those who might love I rebuke and discipline, so be earnest and repent. So here's one thing as we start to end this up. I think we get to this real beautiful place in the story because in the beginning it's real tough and we don't know how to deal with it. Then he gets to this place where he's talking about like, if I love you, I will rebuke you. And this is what I want you to hear real quick, okay? You can thank God if he's disciplining your life right now and rebuking you because at least it says he hasn't torn down the walls and let the weeds grow up and let everything go away and never rain again because he doesn't care. You know why you're being rebuked today? You know why there's discipline in your life today? You know why these things are happening? Because he still cares about you. You know why you're experiencing these things? Rebuke and discipline? Don't be mad. (laughs) You should actually celebrate that he's still at your door you should actually celebrate that he hasn't walked away. You should actually celebrate that he still cares enough about you, just like with our kids, right? Why do we discipline and rebuke our kids? Because we love them, right? If you stop getting disciplined and rebuked kids by your parents, you can just be like they gave up on you. They're just gonna be like, whatever, just do whatever you want to do. I don't even care anymore, right? But discipline comes out of love, and rebuke comes out of love. And then he ends it with this part of the story, or uh, and I think it's a beautiful story. Here's what he says: Verse 20: "Here I am. I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and, and come in and eat with that person, and they with me." Now, I don 't know about you. I'm just going to tell you my own story. I have no idea why, of 20 years walking away from Jesus Christ in my life, that he would still be at the door waiting. I have no idea. Not only waiting, knocking. Hey, I'm here. Hey, I love you. Hey, let me remind. You know what I mean? Why? Why would he do that? Love. The response of love is, I'm still going to be here. I'm still going to stand at the door. I'm still going to knock. And you know, here's the thing that this is what I expected. So when I was working through salvation, like trying to figure it out, and I did, and I understood this, I'm like if I open up that door, you know what my expectation is? That he's going to come through that door and he's going to be like, I'm going to teach you a lesson so you never go back and do that again. That's what I'm expecting. Like when I open up that door, I'm thinking to be like, I'm going to deal with how I deal with my kids. I'm going to teach you to never do that again punishment. That's what my expectation was. When he comes through the door, I get it. I was wrong. I accept you as my savior. And so this is the picture that's so beautiful. The expectation should be punishment. But you know what you get? A savior who will walk into the door and sit at the table and dine with you in relationship. Come on. Tell me that's not the most beautiful picture of how Jesus works with people. You've rejected him for years of your life and he stayed at the door. You walked away from him years in your life and he's still knocking. You walked away from him for years in your life and he's still willing to say, Let's sit at the table and talk because at the table is where things get worked out. Not through a club, not through punishment, not through all these things. We're going to sit at this table and in relationship, I'm going to show you that I love you. And around tables, amazing things happen through relationships, right? And so as the worship team comes back up, I want to end with this. I going to read to you verse 21, and then I'll talk to you a little bit about communion. We're going to take communion today. Verse 21 says, To the one who is victorious, I will give the right to sit with me on my throne. Just as I was victorious and sat down with my father on his throne, Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. So again, he ends it with the same thing. If you have ears, you should hear. You should respond in certain ways. But here's what I want you to see. So as we do communion together, here's one of the things and and why we did communion together and why we should remember what communion really needs. You want to know, like, you know how I said that true love always has a response you know how we talked about that? Like true love always has a response. And true love's response or deeds will show how much he loves us. I want you to think about this. A rebellious nation. Think about the nation of Israel. A rebellious nation. People who kept spitting in his face, worshiping other gods, going against him. Like people that just never got it right. Right? What should be the response of a God who loves his people? Right? Well, you know what his response was? to send his one and only son to this earth to live through a human life, suffer and die, and you know why? For you who didn't even love him. For you. You know what the response of true love is? True love is a savior who will come to this earth being spit on, shamed, walked away from, and he says, you know why I'm going to take the nails and you know why I'm going to stay on this cross? Because it could have got down. You know why I'm going to take this beating beyond human recognition? You know why I'm going to do that? Because I saw your face. I saw you before you were knit together in the womb. I knew you and I know you and I will be on this cross for you. That's what true love does. True love sacrifices knowing that you have no thought Of love being loved back. That's what true love does. That's why when we take communion, we're always telling you, like, you should take a time of reflection. You know why you should take a time of reflection? So you should see where your heart really is. Are you really loving him? Are you at a place where you understand that he loved you in this way and that the response of true love is to love him back, right? Like those are the ways you're supposed to happen. And don't get caught up in, well, do I do this deed or that deed or do I walk out of here or do I need to do this or that? What you need to do when you walk out of here is love Jesus. And he'll tell you what to do. Love him. Don't try to make it too complicated. Love him. And so during this time of communion, here's what I want you to do. I want you to take a time, and we'll have a minute or so here where you take a time of reflection to just ask yourself these questions. One, do I understand the love? Where is my heart? Am I lukewarm? Do I need to do something? Am I cold? What is my response? Am I hot? What is my response? Whatever those things are, I'm a believer that if you truly will take this time to say, God, speak to me, I want to hear from you. I I want to hear today. What do I need to deal with? What needs to be different? What, do, what needs to change inside of me? What is confirming that I'm on the right track? During this time of reflection, you'll hear. And after that time of reflection, we'll come up and take communion. There's four tables, two here in the back and two, uh, or two in the front and two in the back. And as we're taking that communion, again, it's just a celebration and a reminder. And then we're going to end with worship, right, which is the other response of love. So I've always said, like, if you love, your response should be worship like you love, right? Worship like you love. And when we worship like we love, then these are the things that that God wants us to do. So let me pray. Heavenly Father, as we come together today, Lord, we love that we can talk about these things, which just make us aware of our need for you. Lord, may we be awake from the deception. Lord, if if people are deceived into believing for whatever reason for years in their life that lukewarm is okay, let them realize today that it's not. We do not serve a God who wants bitter, mediocre grapes. He wants the best, and that he's given us every opportunity to do it. That as our Savior, that, that he's made sacrifices for us, may we love him back well. Lord, may this time of reflection reveal what you want to say to each one of us. Lord, we love you. In your name we pray. Amen. As an online community, we just want you to know how much we value you and how much we love that you're a part of our church family. So we want to take an opportunity to uh, participate and take communion with you. And so if you have the elements with you, we just ask that you gather them together and we uh, will take communion together as an online community. Here's what the scripture says in Matthew 26, verse 26. While they were eating, Jesus took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to his disciples, saying, Take and eat, this is my body. Then he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink from it, all of you. This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for the many, for the forgiveness of sins. So we just want uh, to invite you as an online community as we rejoin the main campus to celebrate together uh, as a church and a church family in the great gift of his sacrifice, the great gift of communion, and just celebrate our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. As an online community, we just want you to know how much we value you.
1: every hopeless situation ceases to exist and when you yours. We want you. We want you. And come and consume, God, all we are. We give you permission. Our hearts are yours. We want you.
0: You know, I think for all of us, if we just really just end with that, right? Like, if you want to try to figure this out, just figure this out. God, consume all that I am, and the rest of it will work its way out. You know, not part of me, not a little bit of me, but all of me. Consume all that I am. Consume all of those who are around me, and the rest will work out. And God will be able to use us in ways to be able to transform this world. So that's our prayer, that we walk away not with a condemned heart, but with a full heart, right? One that's restored, and one that's filled, and one that's consumed, because that's the one that he can use. He never uses somebody who's condemned, but somebody who's restored, and that's what he wants for each one of us. So thanks for joining us here at our main campus. Thanks for joining us online, and we'll see you guys next week.